This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter. Last week, uh, just to give you a little bit of context as you're flipping there, last week Kevin preached on the day of Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2. And so today in chapter 3, of course, this is right on the heels of uh, Jesus not only being crucified and buried, but resurrecting, um, being on the earth for 40 days, ministering to hundreds of His disciples. And then then He ascends into heaven. He tells His disciples to wait. He says, wait because I'm sending you a promised helper. And so last week we saw where the believers were waiting and they were praying together and God sends His Holy Spirit, His helper. And we see miraculous things as a sign of the Holy Spirit's coming into the hearts of believers. We see a man like Peter who was uh, cowering down in front of a small child that asked if he knew Jesus a mere two months earlier. Now this Peter is boldly preaching sermons to crowds of thousands of people. We're seeing the church grow, not only externally, uh, where we're seeing thousands of people joining the congregation, but we're also seeing the church grow internally. We're seeing it deepen in generosity uh, and in love for one another. All as a result of Jesus continuing to lead His church by the power of the Spirit. And so Luke, in writing Acts, makes it abundantly clear that even though Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father as we confess, He is still very much present with His people, continuing to guide and lead by His Spirit. And so we pick up today in chapter 3. I'm just going to start reading in verse 1 if you'll follow along with me. Acts chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over, and denied in the presence of Pilate, whom he had decided when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. 
Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant Jesus, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. It's given for our benefit. So let's go to Him and ask for His help in understanding and applying it. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning needing Your Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us into Your truth. Lord, to expose sin where we need it. Lord, and as a result of that, to lead us into times of refreshing. Lord, times in Your presence, being restored, being united to You. Lord, would You do this by Your Spirit this morning as we study Your Word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, this morning obviously covering a whole chapter. Uh, we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning in Peter's sermon to the people. Uh, but we're going to start just kind of by unpacking this miracle of the lame beggar. Our points are behind us, but we're going to kind of walk through this miracle that happens. And I hope that it becomes apparent as we go that this healing of the lame beggar actually serves as a kind of metaphor, kind of picture for what Peter is offering to the crowd as he preaches. So, Let's, let, let's begin where Luke begins in verse 1. It says, Peter and John were going to the temple to pray. Uh, and while they're going, they're encountered by, or they encounter a lame beggar. In verse 2, uh, Luke makes it clear this man had been lame from birth. Alright, now, we don't know much about this man's story. We don't know much else about him. But just that phrase that he had been lame since birth... We can infer a lot about this man's experience, what his life had been like up to this point. At the very least, we know this man was unable to walk. We know that his friends had to carry him and lay him at the gate. And this had been the case for all of his life. There wasn't a day that he could remember being able to walk, run, play with friends, etc. This had been this man's experience all his life. And because he was unable to walk, he was unable to work. Hence, he's sitting at the temple gate begging for everything that he has. If he couldn't work, it means he couldn't own property. This, these two factors meant this man was incredibly poor. And not only was he poor, but he was down the social ladder quite a few rungs. Right? This was not a wealthy, powerful person. He was unable to go where he wanted, when he wanted. So it was a loss of freedom and independence there that this man had experienced his whole life. He was forced to rely on others for everything. And maybe, look, this is just Zach reading between the lines here, okay? But I wonder if he felt a great deal of shame. That that the people closest to him that he loved the most were constantly having to do things for him. 
If you've ever been down with a surgery for any length of time and you have to count on someone to bring you your coffee, to pick something up for you, right? Go get the TV. It is a frustrating feeling not to be able to do anything for yourself. This man had had that feeling his whole life. He was forced to rely on the people he cared about the most. And so you can imagine decades of pity stares, painful avoidances. It would have taken a toll on this man emotionally, spiritually. And yet what's amazing about this encounter with the apostles is that we, we, we see very clearly that neither his social status or his physical limitations made him any less valuable to Jesus. Right Throughout the Gospel accounts, one of the things that was so encouraging going through Luke was to see the heart of Jesus towards the needy, the vulnerable, the outcast. Jesus is shown to be someone over and over in the Gospels that is not that doesn't merely tolerate needy people, but is actually drawn to them. The, the, the deepest part of Jesus' heart is drawn to people who need Him. It's not repelled by those people. And here what we're about to see is Jesus through His apostles in that same manner being drawn towards this man and do something miraculous. And so when he sees Peter and John going into the temple, he asks them for alms. And Luke tells us that he's strategically positioned at the gate called Beautiful. Uh, likely this would have been uh, the, the gate of Nicanor. It was a gate made of Corinthian bronze. It was a beautiful gate. It would have stood out. And so this man strategically positioned himself by this gate... Because, I mean, think about it, right? People coming into church, how do you go in to worship God and walk past someone in so much need? And so he positions himself there and had for years. And so he asked Peter, hoping that they would give him some money, just a few coins his way. Instead, Peter fixes his gaze on him and tells him that he has something better than money. And Peter even gives him a shocking command. He says, In the name of Jesus, I command you to rise and walk. All right, now, without knowing what happens next, without knowing the rest of the story, if you just take that instance right there, you imagine what's going through the man's mind as he hears a command to get up and walk. Sounds like a pretty harsh thing, right? Say, look at somebody in a wheelchair and saying, hey, you want to go for a jog? Like, you just don't do it. It's harsh. So why was this not a harsh command? Because it came with power to obey that command. Right? The reason why this was a gracious command and not a harsh one is because when Peter commanded him, there was power supplied for his obedience. And we see that Peter goes over and grabs his hand and Luke, being a physician, he tells us you know, this man's feet and his ankles and his legs were strengthened and he begins to leap and praise God. And Peter goes out of his way in verse 12 to make it abundantly clear that it was not by the apostles' goodness and it wasn't by their power that this man was healed. And because you and I know our Bibles a little bit, right, we know that it wasn't because this man was good. It wasn't because this man was powerful. If that was the case, he might have been healed decades before this. So where did this power come from? Peter tells us it came by faith in the name of Jesus. Such an interesting phrase. The name of Jesus. Not just in Jesus, but the name of Jesus. Jesus' name tells us a great deal about Him. And and what Luke is saying is this. Is that this man, with the faith that was given to him, simply cast his total need on Jesus. 
on all that Jesus is. And Jesus and His power is sufficient for this man's need. It was plenty to restore him physically. And as we'll see, spiritually. And this miraculous healing, as you can imagine, drew quite a crowd. And it gives Peter an opportunity to share the gospel with this group of people that had been going to the temple to worship. And so I always like to give you kind of a thesis statement so you know where we're driving to. So this is kind of our one-sentence summary of the sermon. It's this, While we stand guilty and unable to help ourselves, Jesus moves toward us to heal and refresh us. I'll repeat that. While we stand guilty and unable to help ourselves, Jesus moves towards us to heal and to refresh us. And as I said earlier, I think that that miracle is going to provide a number of parallels for Peter's sermon that we'll see as we go through this. We have three points this morning. The first one is this. This is the first truth of Peter's sermon I think we need to grapple with. Peter in verses 13 through 18 says this. Peter addresses the crowd. He says, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Hear this. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and His name by faith in His name. He has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith is through Jesus, has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And Peter goes on, he says, Now brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, this he fulfilled. So our first point that we have to grapple with, the first truth that Peter gives to this crowd, and I think we need to recognize as well, is that we are each guilty before God. We are each guilty before God. This formerly crippled man, uh, after being healed, he enters the temple, leaping, jumping, praising God, and it obviously caused a bit of a commotion, right? And, and, and the crowd comes to Peter wanting to know, how is this man healed? How did this happen? We've seen him for decades. We know he's not able to walk. What happened? And Peter begins to connect the dots for them in verse 13. He begins by saying, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob... The very God they were going to worship at the temple has glorified His servant, Jesus. Think about how shocking that would have been. The very Jesus that had been crucified in this city a mere two months ago. This Jesus is God's servant that has been glorified. And while Peter doesn't explicitly reference the Scripture here, that that word servant... It's drawing back to Isaiah, talking about the suffering servant. Jesus was that promised Savior that had been foretold by all of the prophets that was going to come and suffer to save His people. But what's fascinating about the way that Peter presents this is that he doesn't count the crowd as passive observers in the murder of Jesus. Peter doesn't look at the crowd and present the death, the murder, the execution of Jesus as being just kind of a historical event. Oh, I'm sure you guys heard about this. He places the guilt and the blame on them. He doesn't pull any punches. Verse 13, he says, You delivered over and denied. Verse 14, You denied the Holy and Righteous One. Verse 15, You killed the author of life. 
this Jesus who made this crippled man well again ministered before their very eyes and they willingly, decisively put him to death in the most brutal way imaginable. And Peter holds them responsible. And some 2,000 years removed, we would co-sign on their guilt. We would look back and say, how stupid, how foolish do you have to be? You saw the Son of God. You saw Him perform miracles and speak with wisdom and authority. And you asked for Barabbas? These very people would have likely been in the crowd that not only called for Jesus' execution, but a week before that would have been waving palm branches, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. This crowd, on one hand, wanted Jesus to be the king. And they saw it wasn't quite the king they were looking for. This couldn't be the guy. Execute him. Give us Barabbas. We would co-sign on that guilt. But the reality is that the guilt for the death of Jesus doesn't end there, does it? It didn't end with the crowd here in Acts chapter 3. Why was Jesus sent in the first place? As we had in our prayer of preparation, why did God send His Son to become man like us? Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis 3, doesn't it? Adam and Eve, our first parents, willingly sinned against the loving rule of God their Father and decided they wanted to be their own God. They wanted to be the ruler of their life. Decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And folks, here's the deal. We inherited their guilt, but we are also active participants in the same sin. By trying to be our own God and King, we have called for the death of the Son of God countless times. Countless. Our lives scream, give us Barabbas, crucify Him. That attempt to self-rule and self-govern is what the Bible calls sin. And Romans 6.23 makes it clear that that sin deserves death. But rather than demanding that price of us, God in pure mercy and love sends Jesus to stand under the weight of His judgment at the cross. Church, we need to hear this. It was our sin that put Jesus on that cross. It was our sin that killed the Son of God. We killed the author of life. You did that. I did that. And this truth is offensive for us today as it was for a first century Jew to hear. So why does Peter start there? Seems like a weird way to start evangelizing a crowd, doesn't it? John Stott put it this way, and I think it's an incredible quote. He says this, Before we can see the cross as something done for us, we must first see the cross as something done by us. If we do not see that we are active participants in the murder of the Son of God, then the cross becomes less beautiful, less valuable. We have to see it done by us before we can see it done for us. Which brings us to our second point. Our guilt can be removed. Verse 19. Peter tells them what the remedy is for their sin, for their guilt. 
He says, Repent therefore and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. As Peter makes it clear, if you recognize your guilt... You recognize that you are an active participant in the murder of the Son of God. Your sin put Him there and held Him there. What do you do? First, Peter makes something beautifully clear to us. Makes it clear to, to his audience here. He makes it clear to us as well. He first assures them that this was actually all part of God's plan. Right there in verse 21, he assures them and us with this truth that as egregious as our sin is... He worked through it to produce the salvation they needed. Through the very sin that made Jesus' atoning work necessary, God produced the remedy. It was by their ignorance, it was by their guilt, that God brought the salvation about. And because He did, their guilt could be blotted out, is the word that Peter uses there, expunged, wiped off the record. How? Verse 19 gives us two phrases there, repent and turn back. Repent and turn back. Repent literally means to change your mind. And that phrase turn back in the Greek can actually be translated to flee. So, so let, let's put those two phrases together there. Peter tells him if you recognize your guilt and you want to know what do I do with it, he says repent, change your mind. And flee to God for refuge. So what does this look like? We're going to start by kind of defining it by negation here. Let's identify what repentance is not. Right? Here in the South, we have, we have some really warped ideas of what it means to repent. So let's, let's make it clear what repentance is not so we can clearly say what it is. Here's what repentance is not. Repentance is not something that merely produces sorrow over the consequences of our sin, but not the offense. If we think we're experiencing repentance and it only leads us to be sorry that we got caught or sorry that it cost us something, that's not repentance. That's just merely being sorry over the consequences, not over the offense. That's not true repentance. And there's two examples of that in the Bible that I think paint just a crystal clear picture of a false repentance that leads to judgment. First, if you look at King Saul throughout the Old Testament... It seems like over and over again, King Saul was constantly confronted by God through his prophets for his disobedience. And Saul would go through a spell where he seemed to be contrite. He seemed to repent. He would weep. He would tear his clothes. He would cry out to God, forgive me, I messed up again. But then after a season, he would do something that was just even dumber. And the reason why is because King Saul was really only sorry for the consequences of his sin, but not sorry for the fact that he had offended a holy God. He wanted God to forgive him so he could move on and the consequences would go away. But he wasn't sorry for the sin itself. And ultimately he was judged, right? Killed and removed from the throne. And then there's the example of another person in the New Testament we don't talk about very much. And that's Judas. Judas, after turning on Jesus, you, you think about that story. It's kind of a weird, kind of a weird turn for Judas, is it not? Someone that follows Jesus for three and a half years, and again, this is just 
Zach quoting somebody else, I remember who it is, but it, it shaped my, my view of Judas a little bit. I believe that Judas was probably really wanting Jesus to stop clowning around, stop beating around the bush. If you are the Messiah, and I believe you are, would you please just step up, show how powerful you are, let's overthrow the Romans and get this show on the road. And maybe in Judas's mind, Jesus had been dragging his feet a little bit too much. And being a greedy person, he saw an opportunity to not only make a fast buck, but also to speed this process along. Let's get Jesus moving. Let's get him to show who he really is. And so he goes and betrays Jesus for some pieces of silver. And then when he sees that Jesus doesn't do what he thought he would, when Jesus is arrested, Jesus doesn't say, Surprise, guys, it's me. Jesus doesn't free himself. He doesn't command him to stop flogging him. He doesn't stop his own crucifixion. And when Judas sees that Jesus is just going to go along with this, I believe the guilt became overwhelming. And so he goes and he casts the silver at the feet of the priests. And the Bible tells us that he goes and he commits suicide. This also wasn't true repentance. True, there was sorrow, immense sorrow, so much that led him to take his life, and that's tragic. What's really tragic about that is that while Judas is wrestling with his guilt, heading to take his own life, Jesus is being tried and flogged and is about to be executed for the very sin that Judas had just committed. Judas's sorrow wasn't true repentance because true there was sorrow, but it never led him to flee to God, to turn his eyes to Jesus. That's why Peter throws these two things together, not just to change your mind, but to flee to God. Judas did not exercise true repentance because it didn't lead him to flee to God. Folks, if our sin never leads us to actually change, if it never leads us to flee to Jesus for mercy, then it's not repentance we're experiencing, but only superficial remorse. So how do we truly repent then? What does it look like? The reality is that you and I are no more able to produce deep, lasting change in ourselves than the lame beggar was to make himself walk. The Bible makes it clear, particularly in Ephesians 2, that our sin makes us spiritually unresponsive, spiritually dead. Only the power of Jesus can cause true, lasting change in our hearts. So when we hear this command to repent, what we don't need to hear is a command to get back to work bettering ourselves. To pick yourself up by your bootstraps, do better, come to Jesus with new resolve... And get it right this time. When we hear the command to repent, we need to know that if we respond that way, it is a subtle rejection of the grace of God that is offered to us in Jesus. When we truly repent, what we're doing is simply acknowledging our inability to fix ourselves and then fleeing to Jesus for refuge. That's repentance. So church, take your nothing. Cast yourself upon Him for mercy and know that when you do, it will be evidence that His grace is already at work within you. So flee to Him. And then depending on our response to that offer, Jesus confronts us with warnings and promises. Verse 23. 
And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, talking about Jesus, shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. If we reject the offer of Jesus, when He, when he comes to us by His Spirit and convicts us of our sin, and we brush Him off, or, more subtly, by feigning some sort of temporary, superficial sorrow, trying to better ourselves, when we reject the offer of the Gospel, we can expect judgment. Moses made it clear, Peter makes it clear, that when we do not accept the offer of the Gospel and simply flee to Jesus for refuge, we can expect judgment. But, to those who see their sin and flee to Jesus and cast their brokenness upon Him, Peter gives a beautiful promise. One foretold by the prophets, and it is a time of refreshment in the presence of the Lord. There are many people in our church, in our county, in our country, in our world, that feel a heavy burden of guilt. And it's a subconscious realization that we have broken some holy, sacred law. Even if we don't know what it is. That there is a conscious awareness of how far short we fall. Maybe you haven't told anyone about the things you've done, but yet it eats away at your conscience anyway. Guilt is a crushing load to bear. Another John Stock quote, he was a pastor and theologian, but he also ran a mental institution in England, and he said this very perceptively. He said, I could send half of my patients home tomorrow if they could find forgiveness. Think about how profound that statement is. John Stott is treating patients, perhaps with everything ranging from schizophrenia all the way down to debilitating anxiety and depression. And John Stott says, I could send half of them home tomorrow, cured, fixed, if they could just be assured they are forgiven. Folks, you and I are not stuck trying to find ways to simply numb ourselves out. We don't have to punish ourselves. We don't have to live trying to do enough to tip the scales back in our favor. Our guilt is indeed very real, but so is the cross. We can go straight to the one whom we truly sinned against all along. And rather than finding the sharp rebuke that we expect, when we turn and flee to Jesus, we find assurance of forgiveness. One who is gentle and lowly in heart. One that can sympathize with our weaknesses. With assurance of forgiveness in the presence of the Lord, there is refreshment for our souls. Peter's talking about the refreshment that's going to come when Jesus comes back and makes everything right. But folks, because we're united to Jesus, that's something we begin to experience now as we walk with Him. 
more satisfying than drink and food, romance, wealth, and popularity. The forgiveness of Jesus comes in and it brings a deep refreshment to the deepest part of our souls. It soothes our heavy consciences. By His Word and by His Spirit, Jesus moves towards us to offer us a miraculous healing and renewal. We too can leap from our spiritual paralysis in exuberant joy. So the offer is simple this morning. Repent and flee to Jesus this morning and every morning. Cast your need on Him and find refreshment for your souls. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for being a God willing to come and suffer for people who have rebelled against You. What an amazing promise that even with our guilt, as real as it is, Lord, Your grace runs deeper still. Father, by Your Spirit, would You cause this forgiveness to become an experiential reality for Your church? May we not live under a cloud of condemnation where You have declared forgiveness. We help us to cast ourselves on You, bringing nothing to You. Simply cast ourselves on You for mercy and for refreshment. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.